Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar and this is episode 15, The Assassination of John Ellis. This episode is a history of exploitation and assassination and even includes an exhumation set in 19th century Ireland to the backdrop of a country struggling to recover from the Great Famine. At 11pm on the night of the 27th of October, 1857, the late train from Dublin arrived in the North Tipperary town of Templemore. Among the passengers disembarking was a certain John Ellis, a well-to-do land agent who had just returned from the cattle market in Dublin. Leaving the train, Ellis boarded a carriage waiting for him and set off through the dark autumn evening. Driven by the 16-year-old William Burke, the carriage wound along the narrow roads towards Ellis's home Shortly before midnight, as they passed close to the village of Lockmore, a few miles from Kilrush House, where Ellis lived, the carriage came to an abrupt halt. The young driver, William Burke, explained what happened next. At Kil- Kilahara, Mr Ellis saw bushes across the road. He asked me to come down and take them away. Leaving Ellis alone, William hopped down and began to clear the road, when a lone gunshot rang out through the darkness. William Burke himself was uninjured, but when he turned, he saw the man he was driving, John Ellis, had been fatally wounded. Fleeing the scene, William Burke informed the police. Now, as word spread across North Tipperary of John Ellis's murder, it can hardly have come as a great surprise. Ellis had previously survived two assassination attempts in 1849 and 1850. He was despised in the area because of his work as a land agent. Land agents in 19th century Ireland were effectively the managers of the vast landlords' estates that covered the Irish countryside. These land agents were deeply resented by the tenants on these estates, as it was they who often organised the evictions of tenants in arrears. The feelings towards Ellis in the communities of North Tipperary was best described by the Catholic Archbishop of the day, 
Patrick Leahy in a letter he penned a few days after the murder. He had been earning this for many a year. If any man, however bad, could be said to earn such an end, by turning people out on the road, I am very sorry, very sorry to say, that the people rejoice in his death, and many of the priests too. It was clear from the letter that it was not just Ellis's recent activity that had angered people. Land agents like Ellis had earned a cruel reputation during the Great Famine of the 1840s in Ireland. As millions starved, these agents, acting on landlords' instructions, led the evictions of desperate families from their homes. Only a few miles from Lockmore, in Toomevara, in May 1849, one landlord, the Reverend Massey Dawson, and his agent, Richard Wilson, evicted 567 tenants. Similar activities had provoked the assassination attempts on Ellis in 1849 and 1850. Eviction elicited such responses from the tenants because, for many, it was equivalent to a death sentence during the famine. The evicted tenants were destitute, and to survive they were forced into the local workhouse, grim institutions that provided the poor with food, but were in many ways just like a prison. These workhouses were rife with disease. Thurless Workhouse, the closest one to Lockmore, had seen 3,000 people die and buried in a mass grave during the famine. The other alternative from the workhouse after an eviction was a coffin ship. The macabre name applied to the vessels that transported the hundreds of thousands who fled Ireland during the famine. In this context, when Ellis had been assassinated, the police who set about finding the killer had an almost impossible task. As the Archbishop had outlined, nearly everyone in the area had a motive. And to make matters worse, the only witness, the young William Burke, testified at the inquest held the day after the shooting that he hadn't seen the killers. Surprisingly, however, within a few days, the police arrested two brothers, William and Daniel Cormack, from the townland of Lockmore. These men were labourers on the lands of John Trant, the landlord Ellis had worked for. They were unlikely suspects. Indeed, Daniel had washed Ellis's corpse after the shooting, while William had served on the inquest jury. Soon more arrests followed, including the 16-year-old William Burke, the driver, and another man, Timothy Spillan. The police began to formulate a case focusing on the Cormac brothers. Their supposed motive was not related to John Ellis's work as a land agent. They were presumed to have assassinated Ellis for deeply personal reasons. Ellis had had some form of a relationship with Kitty Cormack, a sister of the two brothers. It's far from clear how consensual this relationship had been. Now, six weeks earlier, Nancy Cormack, another sister, had given birth to a baby outside of marriage. In the 19th century, life for a single mother was immensely difficult. They were forced into the local workhouse to give birth and face the stigma of having raised a child out of wedlock, something scorned on by the increasingly powerful Catholic Church. The police began to formulate the case based on the belief that William and Daniel had killed Ellis to stop a similar fate befalling their sister Kitty. The case against the two brothers was weak and based on very little hard evidence. After being held for three months, the trial began on Friday the 12th of March 1858. William Cormack was to be tried first, followed by a separate trial for his brother, Daniel. However, to the two brothers' horror, 
when they arrived in court, they discovered that the police had turned the young William Burke and, worse still, Timothy Spillane to testify against them. William Burke retracted his testimony that he had given at the inquest and now claimed not only to have seen the assassins, but that he could identify the gunman as William Cormack, aided by Daniel and the third man, Timothy Spillane. Spillane, in turn, then testified to back up Burke's story in a return for clemency. To complicate matters further, Burke, however, weakened his own case when he claimed to have had prior knowledge of the killing. This now made his evidence undependable, and the police were stuck with two witnesses who could be easily undermined by the defence, given that they were involved in the plot to kill Ellis by their own admission. The jury retired on Friday evening and deliberated through the weekend, recalling the court several times to hear various parts of the evidence again. It was clear they were divided. By 4.30pm on the Sunday afternoon, they had still not reached a verdict and the judge dismissed the jury, ordering William's retrial to be heard the following day in conjunction with the trial of his brother Daniel. The new trial began on Monday the 15th of March and the evidence presented was much the same. The case lasted all day and the jury retired at 8.15pm. Given the previous deliberations had taken nearly three days and still failed to reach a verdict, the brothers settled in for a long, nervous wait. However, less than 90 minutes later, the jury returned with a verdict. In the courtroom, the Cormac brothers waited with bated breath for the result. As the jury foreman read their verdict, the courtroom was stunned when the two brothers were found guilty. A few days later, when they were brought before the judge for sentencing, he donned his black cap, which meant only one thing, and the worst fears of the brothers were confirmed when he read out the formulaic words. The sentence of the law, therefore, is that you, William and Daniel Cormack, be taken from the place where you now stand to the jail, and hence to the place of common execution, and there, on Tuesday the 11th of May, be hanged by the neck until you are dead, and that your body be buried afterwards within the precincts of the jail, and may the Lord have mercy on your soul. As word circulated about the upcoming execution of William and Daniel, the public outcry was immense. Friends and supporters busily set to work and collected a petition signed by over 2,300 people calling for the death sentence to be commuted. It was even signed by several members of the local clergy and all the members of the convicting jury. As the date for execution approached, tensions in the area grew. A letter for clemency was rushed to the Lord Lieutenant, the 13th Earl of Eglinton, Archibald William Montgomery. However, he was uncompromising and pushed ahead with plans for the hanging which would take place in front of Nina Jail on May the 11th, 1858. When the day arrived, a large crowd gathered. The proceedings began when the hangman arrived on the scaffold to oil the rope. At 11.30, the brothers were brought out and in accordance with custom, they were afforded final words. Daniel took this chance to proclaim his innocence. His last words were, Boys, we are innocent of the murder of Mr Ellis. By word, thought or deed, we had nothing to do with it. From the bottom of our hearts, we forgive our enemies. Pray for us. 
we offer up the sacrifice of our lives in atonement to God for our sins. In the aftermath of the hanging, in accordance with the sentence, their bodies were not returned to their families, but the two young men were buried in Nina Jail, inaccessible to friends and family. This hanging, though, created outrage in the area. People firmly believed in the brothers' innocence. Thomas Burke, the 16-year-old driver, for his own protection, was sent to Canada by the state. However, before he left, he did admit to the police he had lied in court. This resulted in the issue even being debated in the House of Commons in London. Soon the North Tipperary area was not safe for anyone involved in the case. Spillane followed Burke into exile when he was released from protective custody, while the presiding judge never heard a case in the area again. The two brothers entered local lore in a song that was composed at the time, containing the lyrics, They never injured any man, although condemned to die, and launched into eternity before the Lord on high. Attend each tender Christian to what I do unfold. My doleful lamentation will make your blood run cold. Concerning these two young men that lately suffered sore, in front of Nina prison, their friends may now deplore. Being on the 11th of May, most dreadful for to see those victims standing on the trap in bitter agony. It was widely believed in the area that the actual killer was a certain William Gleeson who bore a deep grudge against Ellis as he had been threatening to evict his family. Despite the obvious and widespread injustice of the case, Ireland was still recovering from the famine and there was little energy or confidence to mount a sustained campaign for justice and over the years the Cormac brothers' case faded from public consciousness. Indeed, it would take 52 years before the Cormac brothers would receive posthumous justice. Over the following decades, the political landscape in Ireland changed massively, a change that would give people the confidence to demand justice for the Cormacs. While William and Daniel Cormac mounted the scaffold in 1858, a man called James Stevens was travelling Ireland, establishing the Irish Republican Brotherhood, an organisation that became known to the world as the Fenians. The organisation, along with the Home Rule Party, reorganised in the 1870s, began the long, arduous process of building what became the nationalist movement in Ireland. In the early 20th century, the main nationalist organisation was the United Irish League. It was quite active in the North Tipperary area and in 1909 they held a large demonstration on the lands of the Trant family, the landlords for whom John Ellis had been an agent. The demand now was not fair rent, but they wanted the Trants to sell their lands to their tenants. It was in this politicised environment that the Cormacs came to the fore again when word arrived that building works were due to commence in Nina Jail, which had been closed since 1885. The nationalist movement in Lockmore demanded the return of the brothers' bodies before the graves were interfered with. A Cormac Brothers exhumation committee was formed and soon they received widespread and national support. They demanded to be allowed to exhume the body in July 1909 and seven months later the authorities granted permission. This homecoming would not be like any other, however. A funeral was to be held in the parish church before the coffins containing the brothers' remains were to be placed in a specially constructed mausoleum in Lockmore Cemetery. At 11 o'clock, May the 9th, 
1910, almost 52 years to the day that they'd been executed outside its walls. The brothers' remains finally left Nina Jail in two oak coffins and began the 22-mile procession back to Lockmore. The event was as much a demonstration for the United Irish League as a funeral. Twenty marching bands participated in a large crowd led by two prominent MPs, John Dillon and John Hackett, followed by numerous branches of the United Irish League. The Irish Times on the 14th of May 1910 reported that a crowd of 10,000 people participated, while another source said that there was up to 50,000 spectators along the route. Among the crowd that day with the relatives of the brothers was a certain Matt McGrath, the man who had cut the brothers off the scaffold and buried them in Nina Jail 52 years earlier. The incident even received international attention with an article appearing in the New York Times. The case even provoked a debate on capital punishment in the Examiner and newspaper in Launceston, Tasmania. In the aftermath, unsurprisingly, these events were strongly remembered in Lockmore. Still today, in the grounds of the church, the oak coffins can be seen lying side by side in the mausoleum. As recently as 2008, the community of Lockmore commemorated the 150th anniversary of the execution of William and Daniel Cormack by staging a pageant reconstructing the return of the brothers' remains to Lockmore. If you want to learn more about this story and see pictures and footage from Lockmore, visit the website irishhistorypodcast.ie. There's also an excellent book on the subject, entitled Guilty or Innocent, The Cormac Brothers, Trial, Execution and Exhumation, by Nancy Murphy. It is a vast amount of police files and contemporary newspaper reports. Before I finish, don't forget to send your questions about the 11th century for the next show to history at irishhistorypodcast.ie. Until then, Sloan. 